Um, you knew uh, I was going to say no, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's get started real quick. First of all, let me introduce Daryl. Daryl and I have been buddies for a long time. Daryl Giors. We go back 20 years and uh, we work together in a lot of a lot of productions. He worked on uh, productions that I did for Absolute Films, which I still um, I'm running a production company. Always got something burning on the, you know, either a documentary or current current projects, something that's been lifelong for like 30 years. It kind of carried on the father uh, son farm. And um, mm -hmm. uh, I haven't spoken to Daryl in a while, and he kind of shocked me when I offered him a job. And he says, You know, I'm all in on Bitcoin right now, I'm really not focused on anything else. And then he went on uh, like a two hour dissertation about Bitcoin. So I go, wow, this guy, I got I to gotta do a podcast just on him. And then I got, you know, I went, I'm teaching podcasting right now as a, you know, one of my sidelines at school, actually my main line. And we've got, you know, a hundred students doing podcasts. One of the things is you got to collaborate. You got to find people out there and go do a show with them. That's how you multiply your, your, your whole game. And so I made, I just went and I popped on and you're the first person I saw and you were looking for interviews. I go here, look, let me show you how it happens. So you're, you're the living example of uh, manifestation, you know, seeing it, doing it, and then acting on it. And, and here we are, uh, Ethan Turber. So Ethan Turber responded, or I responded to Ethan Turber's desire to have a podcast. And look, bleep. Right in front of us, here's the podcast, Living Out in Living Color. So tell us a little about yourself. I mean, your book, uh, your book is, I think, the most apropos thing. As soon as I saw what it was that you were um, behind, the next gold rush, mm -hmm. how crypto will change everything. That's the conversation I was having with Daryl. He's all game over. It's like... <laughs> I've been locked on this for a long time. He goes, I'm not giving you any financial advice, but it's not a bad thing. In fact, uh, I'm all in and I'm, I'm writing it as far as I can ride this. So when I think that would a be a good thing to start with on your behalf is to inform the audience that we are not giving any investment advice at all during this entire podcast. Thank you for that. That's always, you know, it got me in trouble in my life, uh, you know, as, <laughs> as, you know, it was worst. It wasn't with my own family. When you give financial advice and it doesn't play out like you thought it would, and then you realize, you know, some people aren't gamblers like maybe I am. I, I you know, I, I, I'm okay to gamble and, you know, high stakes, high stakes, low stakes. I mean, I, I kind of know what I'm willing to lose, but that doesn't work for the next person. When they listen to you and they see like, well, you're doing pretty good. That's, I'm going to, and they were all in all of a sudden. Now they're like, well, and it doesn't go well. Now you've like, so yeah, absolutely. I'm clear now as an example of anything in the stock market, anything financially, it's money is like going to a casino. And, you know, if, if you understand the house and you're in on the house, maybe you got an advantage, right? So I think with Bitcoin, you can say that you're part of the house. It's something that it, internally, it's a gamble if you understand it. 
but we don't know what, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So yeah, Daryl's absolutely right. That's the first thing you told me. He goes, look, I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff, but first off, I'm not giving any financial advice. I go, wow, that was smart. This guy is not going to be responsible consciously um, for anything that leads me to like empty my bank account. But so with yeah. that, why don't, why don't you give us a little background, Ethan? Sure. Uh, I just wanted to add real quick that when I've been interviewing people for my book, that that was one of the things that came up was that this isn't financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. Um, I think it's really important that you start off that way so that everyone's on the same page. Um, so yeah, let me give a quick background on my book. Um, this is something that I had an idea for this book two years ago, and it wasn't until the pandemic where I thought, you know what, maybe I should actually work on this. And so that's what I've been doing for the last five months, is typing away. I've written over 40,000 words. Um, I'm in this program called the Creator Institute. So um, I get to work with a lot of amazing authors and editors. And um, my plan is to publish in August of this year. So that's just the quick background. The idea for the book, The Next Gold Rush, I will say is that I you know, became fascinated with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in 2018. All right, and that there's like a bubble where everyone wanted to get on get in on Bitcoin. No one really knew what it was. I was starting to go down that rabbit hole back then. And a lot of my friends also were really curious, but no one really knew what it was. And the more I learned about it, the more fascinated I became. And it's become a common um, part of my life for like two years, three years now. Um, so much so that I wrote a book to try to explain it to other people because I feel like you start to have the same conversations over and over again. And the best way you can educate people is at scale with a book or a class, a podcast. And so I really think that the more people that know about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, the better um, people will be because of the power this technology has for decentralizing. And I'm sure we'll get into this more, um, especially because of Daryl's shirt. Um, but yeah, I really think that it's it's more about empowering the people with cryptocurrency, and that's why it's so amazing. Just just to launch, kind of for those that aren't up to speed on on Bitcoin, just it's it's how it entered into the whole um, you know into the arena. Your you know the the two thousand eight uh, Satoshi Nakamoto shows up. And he's, and he, you know, a year later, he, he, that's 2008, 2009, kind of dropped the open source where people could really get get uh, a handle on it. And then, you know, fast forward to the, to the, uh, you know, the black market where it really showed its true value and its kind of proof of concept. Um, uh, and, you know, the Silk Road just actually showed that what, the potential was and then the difference between bitcoin and you know the fiat system is the fiat system has no transparency only to the bankers so no one there's no checks and balances it's whatever they whatever they tell you it, it is whereas bitcoin is really transparent we don't know who owns it we don't really know how you know who the, who's making the transaction but you can see completely every detail of the transaction so just on its base value in terms of honesty it's such a such a more credible uh financial ledger just out the gate 
So I think if Daryl really, he's like a, an early miner, he would, I, I'd be interested in taking us kind of at the beginning of your, your interest in it, what drew you into it? And then what did it take to set up your mining? Okay. Well, I have a story that a lot of people will recount in that I didn't take it seriously the first couple times I heard about Bitcoin. I was like, what is this magic internet money and people waste energy to mine it? It sounds like a really big squandering of energy and pollution. And why would you possibly do that? Uh, until one time in 2013, actually it was nearly eight years ago because it must have been uh, March 31st that this happened. I heard a little bit more about the fundamentals of how it works and that inspired me to go look at the white paper and after looking at the white paper, I, it just started dawning on me that, wait, this is something totally new because, as you mentioned, with the Federal Reserve and how fiat money is managed, uh, with Bitcoin, there's nobody in control of it. Basically, you have miners who are securing the blockchain, and we don't need to go into the weeds about what all these terms necessarily mean. But uh, just that it's an open ledger that has an accounting of who sent who different denominations of Bitcoin and currently who owns what. And that's secured on something called the blockchain and people mine that, but anyone can mine it if you have the proper equipment. Uh, so it's this democratic thing. Uh, there's no one top down saying, you're gonna be a miner and you're going to be a node and all this other stuff. Just anyone can voluntarily jump in and out of this network as they please. And also the creators of it, whether it was an individual or a group uh, known as Satoshi Nakamoto left the stage without revealing who they are. And that way, uh, if they happen to have some secret backdoor to the entire enterprise, no one was going to be able to coerce them into giving it up. And since it's also open source, it can be you know, analyzed and we know there's not a backdoor. So it's this pretty egalitarian way of bringing money back to the people. And once that dawned on me, I thought, wow, I got to get my hands on some because this sounds really important. It also didn't hurt that in previous times when I heard about Bitcoin, it was probably under a dollar. And uh, I have a thing where I sometimes do uh, like science work on my computer where I just let the computer run on folding proteins and stuff like that for medical science. And it's not anything that is hands-on or whatever. But the first couple of times I heard about Bitcoin, I thought, well, would it be selfish of me just to mine some Bitcoin on my own and maybe make two or three bucks a day? It probably would have been several Bitcoin a day mining it. And I thought, you know what, I'll just keep donating to science because I don't need that three bucks or whatever it is. But then uh, this other time in 2013, when it came back to my attention, it was about like $50, $60 in the marketplace. And I'm like, how does it go from under a buck to 50 or $60 in a couple of years, you know? Uh, so at the time there weren't really great ways to get a hold of it. Uh, there's a thing called local Bitcoins where you can take cash to a center where one of these meetings is going on. And you basically do it like almost like it's a drug deal or something where it's like, hey, I brought you a load of cash and you're gonna send me some Bitcoin and I'll check it out on my phone and make sure I actually received it. And then all is good. That seems a little eh, iffy, you know. And then uh, at the time, there was a, an exchange in Japan called Mt. Gox, which was formerly a Magic the Gathering 
uh, trading card uh, exchange. And to get my money over there from my bank, I had to use basically like some Russian version of PayPal. And I'm dealing with a, an exchange in Japan. And it just seems so like, you know, there are so many ways my money could get lost along the way. It's going to take forever to get there. Uh, it just seems so convoluted that I came to the conclusion that my best way to obtain something that early on would be to mine. And so the next day I went out and bought a computer and slapped like three high-end GPUs into it. And I started mining Litecoin because that was actually more profitable to mine on that kind of hardware at the time. And then I could sell the, the Litecoin for Bitcoin. And that's how I got my first. Wow. So, what, so how long did it take to make your first profit on it? Come up with a, uh, to come up with a blockchain. I actually did a boneheaded thing at the beginning. I was solo mining uh, because I had this understanding that there's a difficulty retarget, and that means that it'll become harder to mine as uh, more people are mining. And I thought that I had a pretty good chance of mining my own block of Litecoin early on. And I probably spent like a day and a half doing that. And then uh, I realized that the uh, difficulty retargeted uh, before I thought it would. I thought it was going to be like a week away, and it turned out it was only a couple days away. So then the difficulty got hard enough that I wasn't likely to mine my own block anymore. So I started mining on pools. And this is kind of getting into the weeds, but basically a pool is a way of uh, everybody who's on a mining pool is putting an effort to solve the next block. And even though your little effort might not have much chance of solving a block even in the next year or whatever, you're still contributing to the group effort. So it's a way of distributing the risk of not finding a block at all. And you're going to get a little bit for the effort that you put in. So it's a way of like, kind of like an insurance thing, like you're minimizing the risk for everyone involved by giving them a little piece of the action for what they contribute. Right, interesting. So well, it, was like, it was probably like half a week before I actually had something I could sell. You know, mm, so half a week because I, I played pretty... my cards wrong at the beginning, you know, live and learn. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you, you saw reward in it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That was, that was pretty cool. I mean, and, 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 uh, during, during the, that, so have you, have you single handedly ever, ever created a block? A, Not a on block the Bitcoin chain. chain. No, no, <laughs> I didn't think so. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And then when did you swap over to Bitcoin? Uh, later on, I uh, pre-ordered an ASIC from a company called Butterfly Labs, which turned out to be pretty crooked. Um, they were actually on the main net mining with people's machines before they shipped them to them, which was the double whammy of you received your machine late, and they were using your machine to increase the difficulty, which would mean you could mine less once you actually got your hands on it. So, eh, you know, and then later on, I dealt with... Um, uh, Amp, I got an AppMiner S2 Bitmain. Bitmain makes that. And, um, you know, I was mining on pools, never solved a block by myself. But, you know, after I bought that machine, probably mined, you know, five or six Bitcoin off of it, something like that. Now, what I want to mention for, um, you know, because I think the book is probably geared toward people just entering the space. Am I right about that? Uh, I actually wrote it three sections. So the first section is for people that want to enter it. Okay. And the last section is more advanced topics. So, Okay. That's good to know because I, I think that 
you know, probably a lot of your listeners, Romeo, are going to be uh, beginners just looking into the space. And I get the question a lot of the time, should I mine? Like you mind, maybe right. I should mine, you know? Right. And I just want to let people know that like in almost all instances, anytime I mined, I would have been better off just putting the money into buying the coin and sitting on it, uh, doing something called dollar cost averaging, where you just set a schedule like, hey, I can afford to put $20 in at the end of every week. And if you just do that and build up an accumulation, uh, that usually works best for someone who's not going to be actively day trading or whatever. Right. And the mining is set up to actually be uh, fairly slim margins is very competitive. And as of today, it's extremely industrialized. Like if you don't have access to cheap energy or warehouses where you can put oodles and oodles of these uh, specific mining machines, which by the way, the mining machines that mine Bitcoin right now, that's all they do. You can't repurpose them later on to do something else. And in like a year or two when they're outdated and they're consuming more energy than the brand new ones coming out, they just get thrown away. Uh, so that's what you're competing with, you know, right. an industrialized thing where they're going to have hundreds of machines versus you in your home. The one caveat I'll put to that is if you're interested in learning about the ins and outs of mining and how things go, it's a great education. Go ahead and do it, you know. But if you are looking at trying to maximize your returns, unless you're going to build a big business out of it, just buy some crypto you know that's I, I can tell you from my experience that would have been better for me but back in the day there wasn't a coinbase and there wasn't gemini exchange and places like that eToro, you know all these different places you can just hook up your bank account or your credit card and buy some so mining was kind of like my foot in the door eventually it became too expensive on the hardware i had and it all got shelved and you know now I might do it on a whim if there's some new interesting coin out there, but uh, not very often anymore. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's some good background. What you got any questions about that? Um, Ethan? Um, I haven't mined myself like personally, so I don't have any experience there, but from what I've researched it, it sounds like you need to have like the proper setup for it to work. Um, like I think people were like buying uh gaming like either trying to do like gaming uh cards and trying to blind that way and um it's just you need to have so much uh cpu power in order to mine nowadays that like i think like daryl's saying it just doesn't make sense to do it um so i i mean at least not for bitcoin maybe there's other cryptocurrencies where you know it doesn't cost as much energy to to mine and so um, every cryptocurrency has its own network that needs mining in some way. Um, so just because you can't do it on Bitcoin doesn't mean that mining isn't a valuable tool in the cryptocurrency space. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't know personally about like, I can't say, hey, check out this cryptocurrency because this will be a be a, the best use of your mining capabilities. Um, so that's that's kind of all I have to add there. What did, what did in your, in your book, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, it's like doing a, a thesis and you're, you know, you're with all these like-minded people that are kind of to the, to the story. What did you find? And what was like your revelation when you said, wow, this is for real. I'm like, I'm in, this is like, Romeo, uh, just, just I a technical it. thing. You were breaking up during that. So I don't know on, on your end locally, if you're going to get the whole question, but you might want to repeat it. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'll slow down. 
my connection isn't the best, unfortunately. Um, I'm just during your your writing process and putting that book together. What was like your aha moment that like you it all added up to like this is something worth investigating? Yeah. Um, so I kind of had an idea for my book before I started writing. Um, I would say that my aha moment was realizing that in order to explain this to a general audience, you kind of had to work backwards. And so in order to get to like the advanced topics at the end, I had to really start at Satoshi Nakamoto and Bitcoin and what that meant. And then build like with Ethereum as like a adapt, like, um, a way for decentralized applications to exist through smart contracts. And the more terminology I would add to the vernacular of my book, the more I realized, oh, I really need to make this as simple as possible and kind of create a step stepping stone of information so that you can have these conversations. So the aha moment for me was, where do I start? And Bitcoin was obviously the, the best starting point, but um, it wasn't really the story of Bitcoin. It was the story of Satoshi Nakamoto, I think, was the most fascinating thing because uh, he's just an alias or, or she. We really don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. And if you start off with, wow, that's the foundation of this crazy, cool, like, internet bubble that we, like, live in, like, that we still don't know the founder of the fundamental cryptocurrency, like, that's the craziest, like, coolest part of this rabbit hole, I think. Right. And then to know he walked off with like, you know, how, how many hundreds of, what was it? A hundred, a million. Was it a million? I don't know what it was, how many million, but he, he had like uh, cleaned house. Right. Yeah. I don't know the exact number of Bitcoin that were mined by Satoshi Nakamoto, but it, he would be like a, or they would be a billionaire um, right. easily, especially because it's over $50,000 right. Bitcoin now. Yeah, I'm sure. One of the interesting things about that is that um, Satoshi's stash has not been touched to my knowledge. So it's just sitting there. And if that Bitcoin ever moves, it might have a weird effect on the price, probably just temporarily. But um, some people are considering it that it might just be dead Bitcoin because if uh, they either lost the uh, private key or their password to get to it, or since we don't know who it is, if they're no longer with us. Right that might be coin that's just going to sit there forever because no one knows how to access it. How spooky is that? I don't quite can't wrap my brain around the idea that you can lose a password and never see it again, that there's no, right. there's no back, there's no backward engineering on that. That happens a lot actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. Well, it happens to us, but you'd think, you know, I guess you can't call customer service. Do you know what I mean? Could somebody go in the back door and just see like what that original entry was? Well, what I will say is that a lot of people these days are recommending that if you know who you are um, and you're technical enough, you could get what's called a hardware wallet. And they usually have a pretty simplified setup where it's just a little computing unit that attaches to a computer through USB. And it does the signing for doing the Bitcoin transactions on the unit. So it never actually has to touch the internet. And these things are usually pretty secure. And during the setup phase, when it generates a new wallet for you, it'll give you a mnemonic phrase of either 12 or 24 words from a specific dictionary. And then it also usually comes with a little card. You can write them down. Or some people for security will stamp them on like stainless steel. 
and you put that in a fire safe or somewhere you know you can get to a safety deposit box, whatever. And those 12 or 24 words are basically your keys to the kingdom. You can smash that uh, you know, hardware wallet with a hammer, get a new one, get a, just get a compatible wallet, whether it's software or hardware, put in those 12 words, and there's all your funds again. So um, it's not exactly rocket science, but it's not the kind of thing that uh, someone who's brand new to technology is going to really grok. And right. for some people, it might be better to just uh, use a custodial account like Coinbase or something like that, where if you bought your coins on there, you can leave them on there. If you're very sure you won't mess it up, try to get it on some wallet you have on either your phone or a hardware wallet where you'll manage the mnemonic phrase that gets you back in. But if you think you can't do that, if you don't live in a secure environment or if you just don't think you have the chops to manage it, then keep it on a custodial uh, exchange because that's at least good enough security. Um, bad things could happen. There could be government seizure and who knows what else. But those are the risks you would take versus the risks you take upon yourself when you try to manage the private key by yourself. Then it's all on your shoulders. And if you're, you know, if you're constantly losing your email password, you might not be a good candidate to attempt to take that responsibility. Right. And if you have any like proficiency with the internet, I would say it's not that difficult to have your own wallet. Um, and it's getting easier every year too. Uh, I hardware wallet, like I showed mine, I have a Trezor wallet. I bought it actually so that I can learn about it and write about it for my book. Um, but I would say that the easiest thing you do is buy it or not buy it. Um, like an online wallet, like, So if you get a online wallet, you know, it's just still the same process. You have to like, you're responsible for your private key. Um, but I will say that it's still safer than keeping it on an exchange and exchanges have been known to be hacked the most. Cause if you think about it from a hacker's perspective, the best ROI is hacking an exchange cause they have all of the cryptocurrency. And so if you're storing your cryptocurrencies there, then that's the most exposure you could get to losing your, your, um, your investment. So definitely look into getting a wallet, whether it's hardware or software. Yeah. So, I can't disagree with that. Um, I, I just say though, that like, um, you, you have to just assure yourself that you're ready for it though, <laughs> you know, but, um, if you've been using the internet a long time, you're probably fine, you know? So. Yeah. Well, so what, where, what do you think of just the last kind of um, the big leap that took us into like another orbit and then the correction it's going through? What, you know, what, what brought that about and what, what do you think is uh, in store for Bitcoin? I can jump in if. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, so I think the, the difference between like this I would say pump or rush of investment versus like 2018, that bubble uh, is the institutional buy-in. The fact that there's, you know, companies like PayPal and Tesla that are putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet, it's adding more credibility to this network. So adding more credibility means more trust, means more like regular investors are going to get into it. So there's this virtuous cycle that's happening because also I think, um, 
was that there's this new concept of Federal Reserve like coins. Um, I, I forget the exact acronym, but you know, even the, you know, the Federal Reserve, um, who is like the antithesis of cryptocurrency, in my opinion, they are getting in on having their own cryptocurrency because blockchain actually is very useful to them in tracking, you know, the many transactions that exist at that level. Right. You can imagine letting the Federal Reserve in on this game that they'd figure out a way to turn it into a fiat, you know, uh, device. I mean, they can't, you know, the, 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 the uh, kind of style of how they operate is kind of died in the wool. They could never be do. They could never do crypto the way Bitcoin's being done, for example. Well, or I could they? Well, I think like a good starting place would be: Is it going to be open source? I don't think so, because the NSA and a whole, whole bunch of other people want a backdoor into the thing, so they're never going to release the source code to that thing. And you know that no matter how they uh, pose it as being open and decentralized, it'll be anything but. You know, they're always going to have a way to manipulate it, and so. In a fair competition between that and something that actually is decentralized, I know which one I would put my uh, dollars behind, so to speak. Right. The uh, the acronym I was looking for, uh, it's the uh, was it the Federal Reserve? I just looked it up. Sorry, I lost it. Oh, CBDC. So it's the oh, yeah. central bank digital currency. Um, and that's that's like a new um, phenomenon that hasn't existed before in this space. Um, Almost sounds like a a, a marijuana stock. Or <laughs> yeah, right, I want some CBD coin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure there probably is one because there was a cannabis coin back in the day. I mean, it's not like these coins go away, but they drop sometimes to nearly zero, and then you know all the exchanges drop them because there's no trading action, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. What do you make of all the competition? Who, who, who stands anywhere near Bitcoin that you can basically trust that you, I mean, you personally have like a, um, you've had a good experience with. Well, um, you want to take it, Ethan first? Sure. I mean, right. if you look at coin market cap, Ethereum is number two in terms of overall market capitalization. Um, but no one really comes close other than that, that I can think of. I mean, Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin essentially before the fork. So that in in a way is the closest to Bitcoin, but um, they kind of lost their power, the network. And so they've been hacked multiple times. They have the 51% um, attack. So I don't know if anyone comes close to actually taking over Bitcoin. I've heard many people claim that they're going to be the cryptocurrency that does that. Um, it's just a hard thing to kind of imagine because you need to get Bitcoin in order to get into this space. It's really still like the godfather cryptocurrency. And until that changes, I don't see how anyone can overcome Bitcoin. Yeah, I tend to agree with that statement, especially after seeing so many other uh, so-called competing coins just kind of dwindle into obscurity. Uh, there are some that tend to stay around. Uh, as mentioned before, Ethereum has a lot of really interesting capabilities to do smart contracts. Uh, it's built differently from Bitcoin. Um, 
in a way you could say that Bitcoin is built simply with a set of scripting that can do some things, but it can't do certain complicated uh, smart contracts. And that's more of a feature because that makes it a lot easier to uh, analyze a contract and tell exactly what it's going to do and how long it'll take to execute. But something like Ethereum is uh, Turing complete, which means it's a completely programmable computer that exists distributed online. And when you give somebody that much power, you don't know if uh, the script will eventually result in an infinite loop that'll just keep eating up computational power. And you can never really tell exactly when it's going to end because it's Turing complete. Like those two things just go hand in hand. So uh, I consider Ethereum to be very interesting, but um, consider it maybe like a higher risk uh, thing to go into because they seem to be about developing things uh, kind of like Facebook does. It's like move fast and break things. And if a smart contract collapses, oops, we'll do the next one better. You know? uh, and they also um, proven that they do not believe in immutability immutability, which is something that Bitcoin has. Basically, after a block has been um, cemented in the blockchain back an hour or more, it's very, very difficult to do all of the uh, proof of work necessary to go back and change those transactions. But on uh, Ethereum, in some of the earlier days, there was a smart contract called the DAO that people were getting um, maybe a little too ambitious with it because people kept like the, the people who developing the DAO were expecting, oh, we might get a few hundred thousand dollars invested in this thing and it's going to do automated trading and you know, you'll receive dividends from it. And it's gonna be kind of like a corporation on the internet that doesn't have any employees. It's just running off of scripts, you know? Sounds really cool. Uh, however, people, you know, it caught fire. And after a while, there were hundreds of millions of ETH, Ethereum vested in this thing. And somebody found a back door pretty soon after launch where they were just siphoning off all the money. <laughs> and uh, what the Ethereum uh, developers decided to do was we're going to roll back to before the money started being siphoned off and close down that, that DAO script. And then we're gonna start from there again. And uh, by the way that Ethereum's constructed, they didn't have to roll back other transactions that happened after that point, they could actually go back to the DAO specific transactions, cancel those, and then start the blockchain from there again. But that caused a fork because there were some people who were more purists and they were saying, look, that's not playing by the rules. You know, all along the developers were saying, a script is a script, the script is law. And if somebody abused the script in some way no one foresaw, that's still fair play. So then there was a fork called Ethereum Classic that was born right at that moment. But it, uh, the point that I'm going to come back to, though, is that Ethereum has demonstrated that if there are enough big players in the space who get burnt by something that goes wrong, they have a history of going back and changing something. Right. And there's, a, there's a huge difference between cannot change something, as in the Bitcoin blockchain, versus there's history of doing a change. So if somebody finds these developers and wants to threaten them with a big old lawsuit, and they're before a judge... And the judge asks, hey, can you roll back this transaction for these people? They have to answer yes, because we've done it before. But if someone, if they ever find out who started Bitcoin, uh, anyone, you know, that there's like, say, 
you know, God forbid a terrorist is paid with some Bitcoin and someone wants to roll back that transaction, you can get all the people who are running exchanges on Bitcoin and all the miners and say, hey, can we roll back this transaction that went to this bad person? And all of them can straight face say, no, we can't. And that's a big, big difference. So it's locked. Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. That that sure makes Bitcoin unique. You know, it's a, it's it's a it's interesting that you couldn't do like such a you know, just a, a clone of Bitcoin and follow kind of everything just slightly different. I mean, I wonder why they would be writing all this other script for all these other coins unless there was something nefarious kind of floating in the background. Well, I mean, like thousands of them are copies of Bitcoin. They just change a few parameters. Right. Even even Litecoin started out as they just tweaked some of the variables on Bitcoin and ran their own chain. They did move to a different proof of work, which was uh, what they call ASIC resistant. Because we were talking earlier about mining that if you just have general computer hardware, you can't really effectively mine Bitcoin. You have to have specialized hardware that does only Bitcoin mining. So there was a... Uh, a proof of work called script that they made for Litecoin, which meant that it basically could run on general gaming GPUs and it would be difficult to make an ASIC out of it. But eventually people made ASICs and now it's like, you can't even really mine that without using one of those either. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, but, but like so many of these coins are basically just a little tweak on Bitcoin. Like they'll have, uh, like instead of a block every 10 minutes, they, they might say, oh, we want faster transactions. So we're going to have a block every minute. And then instead of the block reward starting at 50, they might start it at 200. And then there are going to be more coins in that universe. Right. Uh, so, but a lot of those clone coins don't, haven't really shown their worth in the marketplace because they're not doing anything new and they always pale in terms of the security model, because they don't have the brute force of the network that's behind Bitcoin mining that. Right. Interesting. Now, in your in your book, Ethan, what's your favorite chapter? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I would say that my favorite chapter is about uh, influencers and followers and how cryptocurrency will disrupt that space. Um, I can get into that a little more. So the way that I see it, uh, the evolution of like coins, if you think about it, like we're thinking about coins at like a company level, right? Usually currency is at a like a national level. And so now ICOs exist. And so companies can now create their own currency. Right, that's a relatively new concept. Um, I mean, gift cards, I guess, kind of technically count as currency, but really bad one. Um, and so companies can create their own coins. I imagine people will be able to create their own currency soon. Um, that's like the next evolution of this space. And so in my influencer follower chapter, I kind of talk about social media and how the relationships between the two parties um, it's not really being capitalized as well as it could be with cryptocurrency. So if an influencer had their own coin, they could have their followers buy that currency and essentially create um, like value that way on the internet. And I know there are a lot of people that are kind of working with this idea 
of uh, people having their own coins on social media, like musicians will have their own currency, like very niche groups. But I was thinking more in a broad sense that people in any sense, um, but specifically influencers um, would be able to use this technology to d disrupt how we use social media. I like that. That's pretty, that's pretty, uh, uh, that's a pretty insightful little angle on something that I haven't heard about. Why not? I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? Um, what, what do you think of that, Daryl? Uh, actually, I think I want to pass this back to Ethan because I was going to ask if you, because um, this is such a fast moving space and I'm sure you're going to be writing this book way up to the deadline and changing things because there's always new stuff happening. But similar to that, are you uh, going to be talking about NFTs in uh, any of your uh, chapters there? Yeah, I know. It's funny. That's come up a lot recently. Mm -hmm. I haven't directly um, written about that yet. I, ha I do have an investing chapter, which I will probably add a little piece on NFTs. Um, but from my understanding, like non-fungible tokens, um, there's still a lot of, um, how do I put this? still a room for people to be taken advantage of uh, because you're not actually buying like that good. Like, like so let me step it, take a step back. So NFTs are a way to create a coin that's like, you can't re replicate it. Um, and so that's perfect for like artwork, right? And so if you have an artist who's trying to sell their artwork, they could sell it with an NFT. Um, but you have to trust that they're not going to resell it. So there's kind of like a double spend problem with NFTs in a way, because you could create copies and there's already, I've seen like, there was something, there's some artwork that was like millions of dollars. I forget how much maybe Daryl can add the exact number, but someone sold artwork for like 60 something million dollars and it's the highest thing ever sold. And then almost immediately someone created a copy and tried to sell a copy of it for like a hundred grand. And so that's kind of the problem is that even though it's like secure in the fact that no one else can get a copy of that coin, that token, um, the artwork isn't secure. Like you don't actually own that artwork. And so someone could try to like replace it, like replicate it. Um, so there's a lot of, um, from my understanding, there's still a lot of wiggle room in terms of like how we can protect like this space. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but you can say that to cryptocurrency in general. So, you know, I think what you're kind of getting at is that there's a problem. And this is what I always saw would be a problem with doing things like NFTs because they've been attempted for a long time. Uh, the idea is that you're going to attach some physical commodity into the blockchain. And then how are you going to verify when you have various different networks that are independently working? How do you verify that this physical item isn't accounted for on some other chain. And that becomes a problem of duplication as you're pointing out, like, mm. and then even on the same chain, who's the arbiter to say that this uh, one item is too similar to, or the exact same item on the same chain. Uh, so it has escaped me how you secure things like NFTs, but they sure are getting popular. <laughs> In fact, yeah. like I'm looking at the cover of your book there and thinking, you know, you could sell that as an NFT. And that doesn't mean that that's the only copy of that image that'll be on the internet, but somebody could demonstrate by having that token and say, look, I own that book cover and they can sell it to someone else. And I understand on some of these chains, um, like you would be the originator of that NFT 
And if somebody resells it, you get a percentage of the resale price. Mm-hmm. So if the price keeps going up and it keeps changing hands, you keep getting paid for it. So it's an interesting opportunity for artists. So I'm not going to knock it. But again, there are security problems in the real world because like blockchain does a good job of securing its ledger and the transactions that are therein. But when you're securing physical items in the real world and digital items that can be copied anywhere and someone else can say, falsely claim they're the artist and make an NFT out of it, uh, that, that opens up a whole other realm of security that isn't so easy to solve with math problems, you know? Right. And I just, I feel bad in some certain like cases where people hear about something, it gets hyped up, right? This happens a lot with the internet. You see like the hype, everyone's talking about it. No one wants to like miss out. So there's this FOMO aspect. And so without really understanding what NFTs are, you want to buy them. And Mm -hmm. so that's where it becomes a gamble. You're not really investing, you're gambling because like if you don't really understand the technology like it's the same thing with my book where i try to explain investing but in order to understand investing you have to understand the fundamentals of what a blockchain is and so it's the same thing with nfts if you don't understand a blockchain you don't understand that it's not actually um you know the actual physical like item is not protected like in a sense that um it's just a record of it like you're 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 securing a record of ownership, but that doesn't mean that you actually own the good in real life. Like it, there's a lot of like gray area here, and so you need to understand a lot just to be able to buy an NFT. And I don't think people are doing the education part; they're just buying because of the hype, which I don't recommend. Yeah, and a lot a lot of people own various versions of Pepe the Frog, you know, because of this. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I'm an old, I'm an old precious metal guy and I'm like, Mm -hmm. I like tangibly holding it in my hand. I mean, you have to think of like, I mean, that's something, that's something that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to, you have to weigh out fiat currency, Bitcoin, and then, you know, precious metals and, you know, precious metals become literally it's wealth preservation. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Run around with you know a thousand ounces or hundred ounce bars and stuff. I mean, you can't really do anything with it, but you certainly can preserve your wealth. Doesn't it's not very practical as a means of exchanging for for goods. I mean, uh, you know, unless health grows over, it probably become pretty handy. But I mean, the the truth of the matter is, so you're mining, and it's kind of interesting that Bitcoin uses the same terms. It kind of like gives it some 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 tangible familiarity that this is like wow someone's got to mine it so there's actually real work going into it and then uh then you just have to you just have to wonder is it secure enough that i could rely that it's going to be there when i need it can i you know or how 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 close is that to evaporating at any moment after i've invested hard fiat money into it or my precious metal uh empire into it I mean, that's the part that's really scary because it's all living in a digital world. Yeah. I, I kind of want to like, because this is a really important part of the conversation that I, I love having, which is that understanding Bitcoin is also understanding fiat currency and precious metals and how they kind of interact, right? They all have different like use cases. 
Um, so like, so what you're saying, like gold is a store of value, right? That's a, it's been a consistent store of that value for thousands of years. Um, Bitcoin is trying to become a store of value. And many people are arguing that it's like digital gold because, you know, compared to inflation of like fiat money, uh, the value of Bitcoin is just skyrocketed. And so right now it does look like a great store of value, um, which is why many people are buying into it. Um, but if you look at like the US dollar, right, that's not a great store of value. It decreases a lot. And especially since like the 1970s, when it wasn't backed by gold anymore, um, and we just printed it and there was no consequences to printing more and more of it, um, we're going to experience more and more inflation because there is no cap on the amount of US dollars that exist, right? At least with Bitcoin, we know that there will only be 21 million Bitcoin ever created and that will ever exist. Like that's something that we know for a fact. For gold, like we could keep mining, but it probably won't affect the price of gold too much. Like there's there's a cap on how much gold will exist because it's a finite resource. But for the US dollar, we can print them into like perpetuity. And at some point they will become worthless. Like that's basically guaranteed. And it's just a matter of time until that happens, especially when we've like printed trillions of dollars in the last 10 years. And we don't think there's not going to be any consequences for that action. So just no, I, I know, I know that, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the, the truth about the whole dollar system and how they're able to play it in such a pyramid scheme for so long is is a testament to like the global the global stranglehold hold of the international bankers ability to manipulate um currency and how you know when you got gangsters and you're dealing with casinos and the casino has a casino in every major city and you can't really you can't you can't buy into it unless you're using our dollars um it's really amazing how far out into Bunnyville we can go with how much money we can borrow. It's just, it's, I don't quite, you know, I don't quite get how, how we're supported by foreign countries and how they'll keep buying our, our, uh, our treasuries. It's really, they've got to believe in it. Right. I mean, I guess there's no place else to look. I don't know. Well, catch this. Uh, there's a story here that 22% of the circulating USD was printed in 2020. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just accelerating. So basically what I think is happening here is if you think of different global currencies as an armada of ships, the US dollar is the one that's sinking the slowest. So all the rats are leaving the other sinking ships and getting aboard USS dollar. And that's where we're at. But at the same time, like um, you mentioned before that there's all this new uh, institutional interest in Bitcoin. And I think a lot of that is bearing out because of threats to the dollar and how everyone's seeing that their purchasing power is decreasing. People with retirement funds are seeing it just dwindle away to where they can barely afford groceries anymore. Uh, it takes two, uh, two members of a household to support a family and even have a hope of owning a home. And all these things that have changed in you know a couple generations. Um, we look at things uh, like we look at a uh, consumer price index to measure the um, inflation rate and they've been changing things on there. Like it used to be that like to buy a steak, 
it costs this many dollars. And now they've changed it to like ground chuck. And now the CPI is being skewed because they're not comparing apples to apples anymore. So the whatever the CPI indicates, the actual inflation is worse than that. Now, some economists will say, well, deflation is no good either. But one of the best arguments I've heard against that is, well, do we know of any particular products that keep getting better year on year and cost less? Well, if you've ever bought a TV or a computer or a cell phone, you know that's exactly what happens in that space because the efficiencies of manufacture are getting so good that you even with an inflating dollar, you wind up spending less for a better product in a year. So does that mean that everyone perpetually holds off and never buys anything? No, because you need to use it now. Like you're paying a time penalty by waiting. So deflationary systems can in fact work and we have demonstrations that they do. Uh, but by the same token, inflation, uh, we're just, everyone's playing a, a, an international game of musical chairs to see who's going to find a seat last and who's gonna fall off the, the edge into hyperinflation. And no one knows the exact model of how the economy works because people are very hard to predict. So it's just a, a, you know, they're basically tweaking knobs of interest rates and all these other factors. And at some point they're going to tweak something a little past the brink and then it's going to accelerate and collapse, you know? And um, yes, I know this is one of those things that like people have been saying this for probably 30 or 40 years is eventually going to happen. But um, I think we can tell that there are pain points that, you know, the middle class and the poor of the country are definitely feeling that, you know, we, we have um, so much more capacity and so much more manufacturing and everything, yet there are so many more people living below the poverty line. And uh, we're fighting over if we should even keep up with inflation to um, increase the minimum wage. And that's not a livable wage, you know, <laughs> like if you're making minimum, you are not going to be living well, you know. So well, those are just my, that's my take. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 then the other thing is like, you know, they're looking institutionally to, to, you know, pay everybody, give everybody a living, you know, uh, what are they calling it? Like the British have the dole, living on the dole. What do they mm -hmm. want to institute? They want to institute uh have a name for it i forgot what they call it but it's where everybody gets money right they just hand out money to every individual what was that universal basic income that's it universal basic income now it's become real it's like well look we're trying to do it right now with the stimulus packages that's yeah. what that is that's their they're they're rolling it out and so it's like the ponzi scheme to keep it going you know qe's qe10 i mean how far how much can you look let's all it's let's all get some of the laughing gas while it's while we still have it we'll share it with everybody on the way out and you know whatever it takes to keep the game going and so imagine how far you can stretch it if you're doing it that way and how that'll juice the economy look i'm gonna give you all the credit you need until you know you choke let's just give you straight cash and then you can go buy you know whatever it takes to jump start to keep the uh, carburetors uh, firing. It, here's the really interesting part about this. I, I love the connection. I mean, I've, I've heard it before, but the minimum wage and keeping up with inflation, like I didn't really connect it to cryptocurrency before. Um, I will say that another interesting 
part about this whole conversation is that during the pandemic, we saw the stock market shoot up, right? Like that was an interesting part of this whole thing is that, oh, the economy is like not doing well, right? Like people are stuck at home, people are losing their jobs, but the stock market is going up. What's happening there? And I think for the first time, at least in my lifetime, like I realized that the stock market was not connected to the rest of the country, that Main Street and Wall Street were just so far removed from each other that you could have this artificial um, stock market increase because the government is pumping more money into that um, sector. Um, that's what quantitative easing is, right? They're printing money, they're putting it into the economy, and then it's supposed to trickle down on the rest of us. And we know that from, you know, empirically, that trickle down economics doesn't work. And finally, we got some like, like some scraps with the, the stimulus checks, months too late, in my opinion, like way too late, did we start to like actually pay people to live? Like, I'm surprised we haven't like done, you know, an uprising because of this horrible situation we're in. And there's the horrible response from the government. But somehow we're supposed to have faith and trust in the US dollar. Like, do you see how all these pieces are interconnected and that for some reason like we haven't like as a general population made the connection of the government isn't working for us they're responding to the donors and the stock market and that's who they care about not us right no you're absolutely right you're absolutely right it's a it's a testament though to how much uh the general population is willing to surrender <laughs> just you know they're they're willing to like roll over they don't they don't have the fight in them and that they're they're perfectly uh, willing to wait for a handout when it comes, and that you know it, it just old-fashioned kind of the the coalescence of groups that would march on Washington and like uh, march on their city council, just do like what they're supposed to do. It's kind of like lost, and there's we haven't seen a revolt since you know the Capitol. That was a revolt, and for all intent and purposes, it's not a it's not a politically correct revolt, obviously. But there is hope that the population still has revolt in them. Yeah, you know, well, only got to find a better cause. My hope has been uh, the whole theory of you don't just change something internally; you replace it with something better. And that's the hope I have for the crypto community is that we can come up with an alternative to the dollar that's going to draw enough people in that, you know, because money, when you get to the fundamentals of it, money is this kind of fiction, you know, like, where's the value of money? Well, you can have money be like a precious metal that can be used for something, but mostly it's just an idea of, I can exchange this for something else. And this is a measure of what something's worth and that can be applied to anything. So we all have to, you know, if more people glom onto the fiction that Bitcoin has value, and I don't mean that that's putting it down by any means, but we've already established that there's a fiction that the dollar has value and that it's eroding constantly. So if there's a, it's easier to believe in a fiction of something that has a fixed number versus something that can infinitely be printed forever, you know? Yeah, that's, that's actually a concept I talk about in my book. Like the fiction that I like speak of is called a, a human institution, like a human system. And those are things that we as humanity have dreamt up, right? Democracy, governments, money, currency. These things aren't like, they're just ideas 
that we as a collective have decided are real things, even rights and value, like values. Like those are things that we attribute um, some kind of worth and meaning to. And so if we can do that for the US dollar and um, other currencies, why can't we do it for Bitcoin and you know digital currencies that are made by the people for the people, right? Like those, that's the, that's the thing that gets me excited about cryptocurrency is that when we first like, you know, made government and democracy, that was, those were the ideals. It was like by the people, for the people. Um, and that's exactly what this is. Like we can see who's making this, we can see what it is. And together we have to decide if we want to make this our you know, primary form of currency. So. Right. Well, that's the, I guess that's the purpose of like this podcast too. It's like everybody who's talking sense about it and talking about it. It's kind of like the consciousness of that, that whole ideology gets manifest. And that, you know, I mean, the problem with Bitcoin too today is like, who's going to get into it? Like it's left the building. It's, I mean, you can get into it the way Daryl was talking, you know, invest. And that's not a bad way, especially if you're, if you're, if you have the, the understanding enough information that say that, that that'll tell you that this this potentially can go to a you know a hundred thousand and so if i if i just start with a small investment and, and stay with it and watch it watch it grow at least i'll i'll get some of it you know it's like it's you want to join that party it's not a bad investment it's like it's like the transfer of all your money from banks. Banks used to give you, you could buy T-bills and you can buy money market accounts and you were getting, you know, maybe max out at five, 5% with a really good, you know, a good, uh, uh, a really good bank would give you, would give you even more than that. Like if you could you, almost it, keep up with inflation that way. Right. But yeah. see, the, the, the problem was <laughs> they took all that away. The, the, the Wall Street took all that away, took, took that away from the banks and said, look, the only game in town is the stock market. So if you want to make any money, give us the bank, give, give, give us your bank account, put it in Wall Street and let's grow it on Wall Street. And that way they can just clean you out, too. You know, it's it's not it's not fair to, you know, your grandparents that are their retirements in there. And the next thing they know, they just lost their retirement. It's it's unless because they don't know enough about how to safeguard it. It's in a it's in another world. Whereas whereas I think Bitcoin is the third alternative to like anything else. And you're right. I mean, the fact that it's it's trans, it's it's transparent. It's it's made by the people for the people. I mean, at least just getting that kind of mantra out is kind of what you know you, what you do with precious metals. You know, precious metals is like you you know it's it's real it's tangible this is the most tangible thing digitally right if there's such a thing as, as tangible it's at least the closest to precious metals i mean that you can if you're going to gamble i mean even precious metals is a gamble right and that's tangible so life is a gamble and mm. here you know it's 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 the the more we know about bitcoin the better off you are, but the, the idea of investing in it in like a monthly, whatever it is, funny money that you can lose that you put into that investment is probably better than putting it into anything else. Even though it looks like an impossibility at 56, 57,000, it's not too late. Because what, I mean, what, what do you think the potential of Bitcoin is numbers wise? May I soapbox for a little while? <laughs> I, I gotta, I okay. gotta open the door. Hold on, one. Go oh, ahead. Yeah, yeah. You guys sure. talk it. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, I think I'll lead off on this one because one of the things I wanted to point out um, is that you don't necessarily have to be wealthy to start with Bitcoin even now. Um, so like when you see that the price is 50 something thousand dollars, you're like, I don't have that much money to throw around. But um, Bitcoin's divisible to eight decimal places. So you can buy a small fraction of a Bitcoin and yeah, it won't say on your ledger that you have a whole Bitcoin. And there's this unit bias where people like whole numbers and everything. But you know, if what you can afford is one thousandth of a Bitcoin, um, and then next week you can get another thousandth or whatever, that's fine. Because you know, if Bitcoin keeps on the trajectory it's on, you'll be doing pretty darn well. So don't be afraid of owning just a little bit. And I know it confuses the mind to see point oh 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 whatever. Uh, and the the thing I'll say also about Romeo indicating an upside. Um, I would say that I've seen enough boom-bust cycles that I kind of anticipate that we're in the middle of another bull market. And uh, yeah, there are corrections along the way, but I won't be shocked if we see you know, multiples of where it's at now. Again, not investment advice. And don't put more in than you can afford to lose. But speaking of that, I also wanted to... I don't know if we should go into the whole GameStop investment thing. I was actually wanted to do that. Yeah. Oh, well, by all means, I won't go into it specifically, but I do want to bring up the idea of doing a short sale, which is if you short a stock, you have these kind of upside down odds you're playing. Like when, um, was it Melvin Investments was shorting GameStop? I think that's GameStop. I think that's their name. Uh, they were buying it at about $20 a share, right? And basically what happens when you're shorting is you borrow cash against the current value of a stock and you agree to repay one unit of that stock later on, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are buying the stock at $20, the most you can make is $20 if all the stock goes to zero because you you basically buy up all the stock for nothing and repay what you owe. The problem is, is that when you're doing a short, as was demonstrated, if the price shoots up to $400, you're now beholding when you, the term is up to buy stocks at $400. And that's how you're repaying and you're losing $380 a share. So what that tells me is that shorting a stock like that has very limited upside of $20 you can make, very high, potentially unlimited downside if the price just skyrockets. I kind of look at putting money into something like Bitcoin as being almost the opposite of that. If you put $20 into Bitcoin, well, $20 is the most you can lose if it drops to zero because there's some big bug that blows the whole thing up tomorrow, right? So, okay, you're out $20. But if it keeps going like it's been doing, where will, how, what's your upside? Where's the limit to that? And if it becomes the world's dominant currency, Picture what everything looks like divided by 21 million. Mm -hmm. Your 0.001 Bitcoin makes you pretty wealthy at that point. So that's my soapbox. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I have, I have two yeah. points to make on that. Um, the first one, just to add on, like it's, it's, it's kind of crazy to extrapolate to the idea of like Bitcoin being like the world's reserve currency, right? It's hard to like even imagine it. But if you just like do that for like a second, then you realize that where we're at now is like extremely early, like 50,000. That's that's kind of like we'll be talking about that in like, I don't know, 20 years. I was like, oh, I wish I gotten in when it was 50,000. Right yeah. now it's at a million plus and 
you know, it's basically like stable, like the price is stable. You can't really make more money anymore because, you know, pretty much everyone's in, you know, like that's what happens with adoption. And so we're at the early adoption part of this curve. And until it reaches the mainstream at a global level, which will still take a long time, like the prices is going to continue to go up because there is a limited supply, right? It's just supply and demand. It's not that complicated. Um, and so I, I see 50,000 is like, a, wow, like I can't believe it's in five digits, <laughs> right? Like people, every time there's like, oh, it was a dollar. Like it was, it was less than a dollar and now it's 50,000. Well, try to think about it as, oh, wow, it's only five digits. It's going to seven, right? Like that's, that's the kind of framing. Um, and when you think about it that way, then you're like, oh, when do I get in? Uh, but remember, it's not financial advice. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm hyping this up too much, but dollar cost averaging is your friend in terms of trying to avoid a lot of the risk with the volatility that's associated with cryptocurrency right now. Um, the second part, the second point I wanted to make was about GameStop stock. Uh, I think the stock market is a rigged game. And I think a lot of people are starting to see that now because what you had happen was that Reddit, right? Wall Street bets on Reddit, they saw that GameStop was being shorted out of existence. That's what they were trying, the hedge fund managers were trying to short it to zero, make it go bankrupt and make their like, like Daryl was saying, like their 20 bucks get rich quick scheme. That's what they were trying to do. And then all of a sudden all these retail investors started buying GameStop and then they stopped that from happening because people started, because they actually own Robinhood. Robinhood's customers are these hedge fund managers, not the retail investors that are investing on there. So if you use a product and it's free, then you are the product, right? You have to start thinking that way. I, I deleted Robinhood right after that happened um, because I realized that Robinhood's not my friend. <laughs> No, oh. uh, I got to do that next. I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't sell. You couldn't sell. I mean, I, I had, a, I had like, I was up really big with Dogecoin. Couldn't sell. I mean, it, it was, the, it was like the most rotten thing you could do. And I'm, I'm still with them only because I'm trying to even out my bets. Uh, but I'm on my way out too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna join what, uh, what Daryl suggested with Gemini. Am I mistaken, I or can you not pull your crypto off of Robinhood? Uh, I've heard stories about that, that like you can buy Bitcoin and Dogecoin on Robinhood, but then you can't transfer it out. You can only sell it for dollars again, from yeah. what I understand. Yeah. So this is really interesting. I didn't realize this until after I like bought a lot of Bitcoin in Robinhood. You're not actually buying Bitcoin when you buy Bitcoin in Robinhood. What you're buying is like a clone security that like kind of tracks the value of Bitcoin. And yeah. so you're not actually part of the Bitcoin blockchain. There's no like connection there. It's just, hey, I want to buy something that's going to increase in value, hopefully. But it's not actually a cryptocurrency. It's more like a cryptocurrency clone. Um, and so if you sell it, you can sell it for money, but you're not actually, you can't like exchange it for another crypto because you never had crypto to begin with. Yeah. And that's another problem that happens with the stock market is that all the stocks are basically proxies to these paper notes and they get duplicated. So sometimes you'll, if you try to add up all of the different places that are selling a particular stock, there are so many more shares than are actually on the books up for sale. 
is ridiculous. And that's a, that's another thing that can be cleaned up that, you know, if in the future there were NFTs that were managing basically the stock market of the future, then the ledger would take care of who owns what, and you wouldn't have this vastly confusing, corrupt paper trail that allows people to cheat the system. And let's not even get into fractional reserve banking, right? <laughs> like high frequency trading. Might, might be a topic for another day. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I say, um, what do we? What have we gone here? We've gone over an hour. This has been pretty good. We've only scratched the surface. Um, I say, what we can do for this episode um, is, uh, let's just call this episode one, and come back and revisit again, and. Uh, kind of see a uh, uh, another another look into it you know as it as it progresses like in a in a month and see what what because I mean I think we're living in you're right I didn't I didn't really put it into uh, you know the historical perspective is more clearer now than ever because of the advent of all these big corporations jumping in that just makes it more real it's kind of like consciousness taking its hold on on uh on bitcoin and when that happens you need that kind of universal spont spontaneous kind of chain reaction to, to light things in motion for a better a better future it's like now it's really manifest itself as a as a uh you know as as something at least we can take it on as more real than ever and so the potential now which was like guessing before everybody who believed in it early on and stayed with it has parlayed all that consciousness into the next level. So if, if, if it's got this trajectory and it's got like once Elon Musk plugged in, it's kind of game over, right? It's like, that should be enough spark to take us to Mars. And if that's not enough of a catalyst to get you on board, at least with what seems to be a good, you know, a good ride, I don't know what, I don't know what else is. I mean, even understanding that you're not out of the game at 57,000, that, that kind of remark you made, Ethan, is, is big because the, the scope of where it's headed is, look, if you're talking about it becoming like a global currency, that's absolutely nuts. But that's the kind of thinking that you have to manifest, especially if you're in on it. And if you understand that there's no real competition, not honest competition, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a great conversation, especially about those that want to be, uh, you know, that want to be informed about the potential for financial freedom or at least some, some security. I like the phrase you use there because there's a typical phrase about the price of Bitcoin or any crypto to the moon. No, let's, right. make it, let's make it to Mars. Yeah, right. Get your ass to Mars, right? <laughs> yeah, let's let's do that. I like it. That's awesome. All right. With that, get any closing closing remarks there, Ethan? Yeah. Uh, I just want to plug my book real quick. I know I've been talking about it this whole podcast, but I'm doing a pre-launch campaign starting at the end of the month. So um, please check out these links uh, this way. Uh, check out the links uh, on my Zoom background. Um, the best way you can reach me, I'm a very accessible person. If you have any questions about cryptocurrency, I'm very happy to answer your questions. I feel like the best value I can add to this community is to try to educate people, um, which is why I wrote a book. And uh, yeah, please look out for my pre-sale campaign as well. 
Um, thank you for having me, Romeo. It's been great. Absolutely. No, thanks for being a guest. And Daryl, uh, you got any closing remarks? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I can't wait to see the book. Um, I'll be picking up a copy, I'm sure. Uh, also, uh, wanted to know if perhaps there, uh, in the meantime, before the book comes out, are there any other books you would recommend or any people to follow on Twitter that you think are very interesting? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I feel like I've followed so many people. Um, the Winklevoss twins seem to be the most active. Uh, the Winklevi, who else? Um, Vitalik Buterin, I always feel like he adds a lot of value in terms of um, like what's next coming in technology in this space. Um, Book-wise, I've read like the Bitcoin Bible has been really interesting. What's this other one I got? Ah, the Bitcoin Standard. This has been like a really helpful tool for my understanding of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And um, there's a lot of great YouTube channels as well. Um, Crypto Casey has been a really great tool for understanding a lot of the basics. So hopefully that helps. Okay. And I'll put out there too that I haven't been uh, personally pushing my views on Bitcoin too often because uh, people I podcast with are not like into it as much as I am. So it's almost like pulling teeth to say like, hey, can we do a crypto episode? I think like I did one with my podcast in current ramblings in 2014 about decentralization, which kind of covered all kinds of aspects of crypto and decentralizing all the things, you know. Um, and that podcast is at IamRambling.com. And then uh, myself, I've just been doing uh, Let's Plays and, and some various videos at Egos.live. So if anyone wants to check me out, it's there. But not a lot of crypto info, but I might add more as we go along. We'll see. Yeah. When I told Daryl about this, he like jumped to hell. Yeah. He goes, hey, maybe we can do a bunch of shows because you know I like talking crypto and I want, I want to learn more about crypto. And so, you know, maybe I'll find a third person we can bring into the conversation. I think I think it could be the beginning of something fun. I'm going to stay up with that. The next gold rush. Oh, how cryptocurrency. And it will, right? It will change everything. It's an excellent, excellent title. Um, can I get Carol, an amen? <laughs> amen. Yeah. Yeah. Preaching to the choir. All right, gentlemen. With that, I want to thank everybody for watching and listening to the uh, Romeo Carey podcast. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you. God bless. And we'll see you next time.